with you. Now, it is certainly a blessed Lord's Day that we are able to gather here. Many of you have um, put aside, laid aside your fears of coronavirus, so we thank you for being here. And more importantly, we in particular are just grateful to God that he has sustained us for one year. That is an amazing, an amazing thing that the Lord has done. The Lord has done when when you walked in, the song said, don't know how he did it. That is our testimony. I don't know how, but he did it. It has not been because of the wisdom of Brandon Knight. It has not been because of solely the giving of our membership, but it has been the goodness and grace of God that we have been sustained for as long as we have been sustained. And while I thought this was a nominal um, achievement, I was reminded by a pastor friend that many church plants don't even make it a year. They don't even make it a year. So we are just eternally grateful to God for sustaining us for one year. And in the midst of this year, so many things have, have transpired. I've, we've had about six funerals in this church, not all members of our church. We've had one funeral alone, had 700 people in this building. Um, it's just been so much that God has done good and good. You know, there is nothing bad that God does. It just affects us differently. So we are just grateful for what God has done. So, again, I believe that us being here is just a testament to the sovereignty and, and providence and goodness of God. With that being said today, you note that our name is Victory City, Birmingham. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about today was what true victory in Christ actually is. I think we're in a day, as we have been for a while now, where health, wealth, and prosperity are being promulgated in many churches. And the fact of the matter is, is that it is such a false gospel that many times we lose sight of what true victory in Christ really is. It has been reduced to a cheap form of phrases and idioms and the minimal influence and proving to other people how blessed we are. But let me tell you, the car you drive, the house you live in, the people you work with, how much money you make, that is not indicative of victory in Christ. It may be indicative of victory in the world, but it is not indicative of victory in Christ. In fact, even with the increasing biological threat of coronavirus, people have seen if they are able to go get hand sanitizer before everybody else or if they can get the food off the shelves and the tissue paper, somehow God favored them but didn't favor anybody else. You understand what I'm saying? So it must be more than just what God wants to tangibly do in our lives that must thereby define what victory in Christ really is. In our text today, John is going to effectively equivocate for us what true victory in Christ really is. And we will see that he has a way that he describes the victorious Christian. And he uses one word in particular to describe that Christian. And that word is overcomer. The victorious Christian is an overcomer. In fact, the word overcomer appears 24 times in the New Testament. 21 of those times, John was the one who said it. 
So as we will see today, the victorious Christian is the one who, through the strength of God and the Holy Spirit, overcomes the constant and looming threat and temptation of this world. Amen. Amen. Go with me, if you will, to first John chapter five, verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Father God, we thank you for this time that we gather together, Lord. This is not about Victory City. This is not about Brandon Knight. This is not about our members. This is not about any celebrity. This is not about any disease. God, it's all about you. You have given us victory in eternity, not here, God. And we pray that through this sermon, we will realize that unless our position in eternity is fixed with you, we are already defeated. So we pray, God, that we will see the true nature of who you are in this sermon. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and everybody said amen. Amen. First point of the sermon today, the nature of faith, the nature of faith. John opens up here by saying everyone who believes and then he qualifies what he means by belief. See, in this time, everybody would have believed that Jesus existed. It would have been foolish not to. They all knew. They had the record. They knew that he had been crucified. They knew that maybe his body had been stolen, although they would not have accepted he had actually been resurrected. But they all knew who Jesus was. So when he says we must believe, everyone who believes, he then qualifies it and says that we must believe that Jesus is the Christ. We must believe that he is the savior. The person who believes here is not someone. I talk about this all the time in our church. This is not someone who merely intellectually believes in the existence of Jesus. The majority of the world still believes in the existence of God, in the existence of Jesus. So that can't merely be believed that I believe that he existed. In fact, Simply acknowledging the existence of Jesus is not actually saving faith. You are merely acknowledging a principal truth, but that is not necessarily indicative of saving faith because belief is beyond our intellectual acceptance and rationale. In fact, we know this because in the Bible, when they were in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked all of his disciples, who do men say that I am? And after they got various explanations, it was then Peter who spoke out boldly and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But then what he does is he seals a theological and doctrinal principle when he responds to Peter. And that principle is this. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father, which is in heaven. And the principle that he sealed is that salvation comes by God and God alone and not by man. 
which means there is not a single good deed. There is no work. There is no act. There is no merit. There is nothing that we can do to warrant salvation other than this. It is a gift from God. And so unless we have the understanding that the parameters of our salvation have been given to us throughout the biblical text, we will fall by the wayside believing we are victorious and utterly defeated. Being overcome by the world instead of overcoming the world. When Jesus was explaining these parameters of our salvation, the disciples responded, well, if this is the case, Who then can be saved? And then Jesus looks at them. He says, ah, with man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. This is not some pseudo prosperity verse. He is telling us unless God is the originator of our salvation, then our salvation does not actually exist. And so unless God saves us, we won't be saved at all. See, this contradicts the culture of our world, which says that we are in responsibility of our own lives. We must be in control of our lives. We must be in control of our truth. Truth is relative. Truth is subjective. But there is one truth that remains. And that is in Jesus. When he said that I am the way, the truth and the life. There is one way to get to the father. There are not many ways. There is one way. And he stands in that way as he is the way. Unequivocally, Jesus Christ is the only way. So if you ask me, well, are we saved by works? Yes, the works of Jesus Christ. So we must understand that unless he reveals himself to us, we do not actually believe. We cannot come into true knowledge of Christ on our own. That is one of the reasons I'm always leery of anybody when they give their testimony. They say, well, you know, I've always kind of believed in God. No, you haven't. No, you haven't. If you've always believed in God, then you've never believed in God. Because the Bible makes it clear we are all born insolent opponents to God needing to be saved. If you were born here needing no salvation, then you don't need a God in the first place. So one of the things that people struggle with is that they want to be able to be in control of something. They want to be able to be in control of their own lives, their own livelihood, because that is the influence as we are being overcome by the world that we must be in control. But that is in direct opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The nature of our faith is that it isn't a self revelation. It is a God given revelation. What is that? It is rooted in our belief that Jesus is, in fact, born of God. He, as Hebrew says, is the exact imprint of God. With that, we see that our salvation in the totality of the works of Jesus Christ and not our own. 
our faith and belief must be an ongoing process of sanctification that happens in us through the work of the Holy Spirit. What is sanctification? We are becoming less us and more him. That must be the evidence in every Christian life. If you are a Christian, a professing Christian, and you are no more like Christ than when you first began, then I would say revisit what happened to you when you first began. See, there are two sides to faith that people struggle with, and I want to present them to you. On the one hand, people believe that there must be something, some work that they can commit, that they can contribute in order for themselves to earn their salvation. And the frustration is that it's a matter of belief and not work. And so because they can't do anything to earn it, to gain it, there is this frustration where there must be something I can do. Jesus says, no, there's nothing. But then there is the other side. That is what I call the cheap grace side. The people who say, well, you can live like you want to live. You can do what you want to do because we're saved by grace. We are saved by grace, but we're also changed by grace. The truth is this, and this is the nature of our faith. We are saved by the works of Christ and the grace of God. The efficacy of his love motivates us to good works in him that's the case that is the case of our salvation is that it propels us unto good works but it is not the product of good works now I know what you're thinking what in the world does this have to do with being victorious in Christ well unless we understand that If we don't get the nature of who Jesus Christ is right, if we don't get the nature of our relationship of who he is right, then we are incapable of overcoming the world because simply put, we are too much like the world. We are overcomers because we know unequivocally that Jesus is God in the flesh and he has overcome the world. And the Bible tells us that Christ in us is our hope of glory. We then have overcome the world because Jesus Christ overcame the world. Bible tells us that the power that raised Jesus from the dead and defeated death, hell and the grave now resides in us. It has been given to us as believers. He has the power to save us, but he also has the power to sustain us. That brings us to the second point of this sermon, the evidence of our faith. The evidence of our faith. As I mentioned earlier, we do not just have a faith devoid of works, but we demonstrate our faith. It is constantly on display for the world, and it displays itself in a few key ways. In our text, John says that the first way it displays is that if we love God, then we also love those who are born of God. Which means if we love God, we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. When we were born again, God's love permeated our hearts. It so moved us and burned in us to serve him that it resonates in us and to everyone else who is likewise born of God. See, we cannot claim to love God and that love not definitely extend to others. But more importantly, we can't claim to love God and that love most definitely not extend to those in the household of faith. 
Listen, on different occasions, John writes prior to this that anyone who hates his brother cannot possibly love God. When he is making a reference to brother, he is not just talking about anybody, but he's saying if you are claiming to love God, a brother is a brother in Christ. How can you love me and hate the one you see every day? Let's examine that just to make sure we are all understanding this. First of all, we must examine who our brothers and sisters in Christ actually are. It mentions it earlier. Those who are born of God, those are our brothers and our sisters in Christ. That is it. Listen, it is not the person that votes the way you vote. It is not the person that lives where you live or lives the way that you live. It is not the person that drives what you drive, that makes what you make, that shares the common interest that you share. It is the person that has been born again. That is your brother. That is your sister first. Everything else is disconnected. More than we are connected to those we are blood related to, we have been stitched together by the blood of Jesus Christ with all of our brothers and sisters. And that should be the unbreakable bond. Our love must first extend to them because we have all been likewise adopted into the same family. So if you think that your race is the defining factor for who you are, I have to break some news to you. Peter said before you were not a race, you were not a people. That means when we were apart from Jesus Christ, we had no race. We had no definable characteristics. It's not until we come into his belief, his faith, and adopt his spirit that we become one people as he intended. So if you are a white Christian or a black Christian or a tall Christian or a skinny Christian, then you need to rearrange which word comes first. Every aspect of who we are is secondary to the fact that we are Christians first. So whatever you are, however you define yourself, put Christian in front of it. As a wife, you're not just a wife. You're a Christian wife. As a husband, you're not just a husband. You are a Christian husband, a Christian parent, a Christian employee. You make that clear to anybody that hires you. I am a Christian first. So I am loyal to that before I'm loyal to you. Many times we try to divorce our behaviors towards one another and our relation with God, relationship with God. But according to John, we cannot do that. If you love God and hate your brother, then the first statement is a lie. Amen. Amen. You don't love him at all. If you have, let me clear it up for you because some people want me to define hate. If you have ill will. 
towards someone that you see every day and claim to love God. If you talk about somebody that you see every day, if you get a little bit uncomfortable when that person walks in the room, if you have any feelings of ill will towards anybody you see every day and you claim to be a believer, you need to reevaluate. Now, you may get mad at me taking over the word. I'm just telling you what it says. I have an easy job. I just tell you what the Bible already says. See, we must go beyond our basic understanding of our faith and uncover all the deepest truths. But then I like what John does here. He wants us to understand that you aren't really loving those around you. Please hear this. If that love isn't born out of an obedience to God, that means we cannot simply good deed our way into heaven if we aren't seriously transformed by the gospel in the first place. See, the evidence of love is that we first love God. John then qualifies that love. Love for God leads to obedience to his commandments. If you love me, what will you do? You will obey. You will keep my commandments. See, I I get really, really angry sometimes. And I really do. I get godly angry sometimes because anytime you tell somebody that you are trying your best, according to the Holy Spirit, to be obedient to God's word, they then call you the L word. They call you a legalist. But I've told people, if the Bible said it, I'm going to do my best with the help of the Holy Spirit to do it. And so I am judging my life according to what it said, because one day he's going to judge my life according to what it said. So I might as well do it now so he doesn't have to do it later. We feel like keeping his commandments requires more of us than we are truly willing to give. But as Christians, we should all know that we are now debtors to the grace of God because we have seen him extend his love to us so fervently. All we can do is do our best to extend that love back to him. We must diligently seek after his will, diligently seek after his heart, know him, lay aside everything else that is irrelevant and seek God first. Now, We don't do this to be accepted by him. We pursue him because we have already been accepted of him. And so because we've been accepted of him, we feel like, as Romans 12, 1 says, this is my rational service, which is to give the man that you saved back to you. See, the Pharisees burdened those around them by their excessive laws and restrictions. But I like what what John says here and I like what Jesus says. He says that is why Jesus tells us that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. His burden comes in contrast to that weight of legalism from the Pharisees. It is akin to being in a loveless marriage. And you don't cheat on the person, but you don't avoid committing infidelity, not because you love them. You just know it's the right thing to do. 
there are many people, perhaps even in this room, who don't actually love God. They just really hate hell. And if the main reason you are serving God because, is because hell is hot, then you better turn up your temperature too. There is no other reason we must come into saving faith other than our love for Jesus Christ. And so just like the person that stays in a loveless marriage, even though they can't stand that person, they start to resent them. Many of us in this room who have probably stayed in our pseudo relationship with God have grown to resent him. Because there is no evidence of love in our relationship with him. There is just a fear of hell. This brings us to our final point, point number three. The result of our faith. The result of our faith. There are a few key attributes to our faith that has been discussed so far. They are love, they are obedience, and finally victory. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, as I mentioned earlier, many people have used this verse as some pseudo-motivational and prosperity verse to believe that in all situations they are innately victorious because they are Christians, but that is simply not what this scripture is talking about. Essentially, this scripture is telling us that just, just that because of the saving death of Christ, we have overcome what he overcame because he overcame it. Now, even in overcoming, please understand this. Jesus was still mocked. Jesus was still ridiculed. He was still beaten. He was forsaken. And he was crucified. Now, if we look blindly and carnally, one may say, well, surely he didn't overcome the world. The world did him in. In fact, in the case of the majority of these writers and his disciples, they were killed by the world. So when we look at their lives, we think this verse must be contradictory. These people didn't have the victory that it promised. In fact, the very man who's writing this later on is going to be exiled to an island and they're going to call him crazy. Surely this can't be victory. But that is until we come to the place that we realize that overcome, overcoming the world has nothing to do with security down here. Overcoming the world has everything to do with our security up there. When Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, he conquered death. That means when we face the world, we face the world knowing that no matter the threat, we are secure in Christ. Death is not an end for us. It is simply the beginning of life because we don't pass from life to death. We pass from death to life. That means no matter what the world can offer, it's no better than what I've already gained 
in him. And what is the guarantee of my inheritance? It is the Holy Spirit. He deposited the Holy Spirit in me and there is a guarantee of my inheritance and it has nothing to do with money down here. Has everything to do with him. See, we have a home, people, but this is not it. We have a destination, but it is not this world. And that is how we overcome the world. Because we know that what awaits us in eternity is better than anything, is better than the best thing that the world could offer us. So we wait with bated breath for the day that we will be passed from death to life and we will see Jesus and everything we went through down here will be worth it. And we can have the same testimony of our forefathers and mothers as Hebrews testifies. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a place for, he has prepared for them a city. How do we overcome the world? We overcome the world by desiring what is better than the world. See, even with the looming threat of coronavirus, it means nothing because there is something better that awaits us. Being persecuted means nothing because there is something better that awaits us. Being slain for the faith means nothing because to die is gain for us. So we put the enemy and we put the world in a difficult position. Well, if you let me live, for me to live is Christ. And if you kill me, for me to die is gain. So whatever you do, brother, sister, I'm good with whatever God allows. And we can have the same testimony of Paul who said, listen, I'm torn between the two. There's a desire to remain here with you, but there's a greater desire to go and be with my heavenly father. That is how we overcome the world. This world is not it. So we don't invest here. Now let's be clear, because I don't want y'all to be confused. God could absolutely use coronavirus to take us out. That doesn't mean that we are any less victorious if that disease takes us out. Because the fact of the matter is, as our old Mother Taylor used to say, everybody's leaving here one or two ways, undertaker, uptaker. <laughs> so regardless, you get out of here. So even if a terrible disease afflicts our body or a terrible crime causes us to lose our life, for us, it's gain. Because the Bible makes something clear to us. Our place in, in eternity is secure. It is fixed. And the Bible said that there is nothing that can snatch us out of the hand of God. 
we are anchored in him. So whether it's corona, cancer, persecution, anything else, God has already overcome the world. And our testimony is this, that if we live, it is to Christ. And even if we die, it is eternal gain. I have a favorite hymn, and I'm going to give you, not sing. I'm going to quote a few lyrics from it. It's my favorite hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. Not well in my body, but it is well with my soul. People, as long as we are okay with God, we will be okay. And then we can not only sing these words, but live these words. But Lord, tis for thee, for thy coming we wait. The sky, not the grave, is our goal. O trump of the angel, O voice of the Lord, blessed hope. Blessed rest for my soul. And Lord, haste the day when the face shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Is it well with you today? Has Christ in you overcome the world? Are you victorious in him? Not based on what's happening now, but because of the security of our eternity later. Let's pray. Father God, we